Well, becoming disciples. This has uh, been our focus since uh, Christmas Eve. Hopefully it's been our focus beyond Christmas Eve, but at least as becoming disciples while we're following Jesus through Matthew. Uh, this has been our, our uh, focus since Christmas Eve, and it'll be our focus through uh, Easter. And uh, I'm, I'm struck every week as we come back to this of like, this is, this is the goal of Matthew. That we become disciples, not just that we puff ourselves up with more knowledge or information or more stories about Jesus, but that somehow it would translate from our head to our heart and into our hands and that we would become like students of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, that we would live this out for the good of ourselves, the good of those that we come in contact with, and the good of the systems and the structures that we uh, encounter throughout our day-to-day lives and for the good of the creation around us itself. And so uh, this has been our our focus for the last few months, and um, it continues to be our focus this morning. So uh, as we get ready to jump in this morning, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Loving God, uh, we are grateful uh, for this chance to be gathered together today. Um, God, thank you for the gift of this community. and God, as we uh, turn now and uh, wrestle with the scriptures together, we acknowledge that your, your spirit is here among us. And we yield ourselves to your spirit, asking that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, inform us more and more into the way of Jesus. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Somehow, surprisingly, uh, Pax is a big fan of vehicles. Surprisingly, because uh, Allie and I are not. Uh, I couldn't tell you a thing about vehicles. Well, uh, up until about a year ago, I couldn't tell you a thing about vehicles. Now I've learned an awful lot about vehicles because of his constant question of why. Um, now, his, his love for vehicles is indiscriminate, right? He loves any and all vehicles. But if he were to show any sort of favoritism towards a vehicle, uh, it would be the louder the better, um, which means that he has a, a particular sort of affinity towards uh, things with sirens, like an ambulance or a fire truck or a police car, right? And so uh, the way that this went about a year ago is uh, we would be driving and um, uh, an ambulance would come by and we'd hear the blaring siren and he would go, Daddy, Daddy, ambulance, ambulance. And I'd go, yeah, buddy, yeah. And so this would happen on repeat. And so at one particular point, I was like, all right, this is a teaching moment for the boy. And I said, buddy, do you know what it means when we hear a siren? So it means that somebody's in need and somebody needs help. So I said, what if when we hear a siren, we prayed, Jesus help, Amen. Short, simple, sweet prayer, you know. Uh, and so he said, okay, Daddy. And so for the next couple of weeks, like it was, we'd hear an ambulance, and I would say, buddy, what do we say when we hear an ambulance? And we would say, Jesus help, amen. So, you know, feeling pretty good. Dad, pastor, check my boxes right with my child formation. And then something strange happened along the way, where one time we heard an ambulance, and he called out, Daddy, what do we say? <laughs> I said, what, bud? And he goes, Jesus needs help. Amen. (laughs) And so, like, to this day, this is what he continues to say. Daddy, what do we say when we hear an ambulance? Jesus needs help. Amen. And at first, I, like, I laughed, and I was like, oh, silly boy. He's so confused. He doesn't know what he's saying. But then, (laughs) the more I leaned into this, I thought, that boy's bound to be a theologian or something, because he's on to something with this, Right? And the reason why he's on to something with this is because in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus makes this surprising, 
profound, revolutionary sort of identification with those who are among the most vulnerable and are suffering the most among us. But before we get to that, uh, let's back up and work our way through this passage a bit. So this comes in Matthew chapter 25, which comes in this stretch going back into part of Matthew 24 that um, is this sort of like weird cryptic teachings of Jesus that um, sometimes referred to as like the end times, which feels dark and scary. Uh, so the technical term for it is eschatological, which feels just as dark and scary, right? Um, but essentially what it means is like the last things, like talking about the last things of, of this present age. Um, and essentially what we're talking about is the, the return of Jesus, whenever, however that looks. And when the fullness of the kingdom of God takes root fully on earth as it is in heaven. So that's essentially what we're, we're, we've been looking at the last couple of weeks with these, with these passages. And so that continues to be the, the theme as we get to Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse uh, 31. And so uh, we enter into, I don't know, it's not totally clear. Is it a teaching? Is it a parable? Like, Jesus is using some sort of story. So um, he launches into the story in verse 31. And he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. So he begins the story with uh, acknowledging that when the Son of Man comes, now the Son of Man uh, it tends to be Jesus' favorite term for himself. Um, and this goes back to some, uh, uh, some of the Old Testament where there was this imagery that was used about the Son of Man, which essentially means like the human one. And there seems to be all of this imagery pointing towards the Messiah, the one who would come and deliver the people of God. So, you know, hindsight, it makes sense that Jesus would use this term an awful lot for himself, right? And so we're told when the Son of Man comes and sits on his throne of glory, which gives us this image that the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of Man, will come and sit on the throne, meaning like he's the king of the world. And the first act that he does is that of a judge. And he begins to like separate people to his right and people to his left. But who is it that he separates or judges? All the nations, meaning like all people, meaning regardless of the ways that we want to divide ourselves into nation or ethnicity or people or tribe or race, all of the different ways that we want to separate ourselves, like all of that falls down. And Jesus is standing here now before all people, acting as like a bit of a judge, separating some to his right and some to his left. And so we get now into the first round of this judging or this first round of judgment. We're told, then the king will say to those at his right hand, come you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it for, to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And so Jesus here says that he will someday turn to those at the right 
and say, you that are blessed, come and inherit the, the, the kingdom of my Father which was prepared for you from the foundations of the earth. Which is a pretty like, radical invitation, right? Like, if that's extended to me, I'm like, yeah, great. But I, I, love the, and, uh, but I love the response of those at his right because they're like, huh? <laughs> when did we do these things, right? Like, when did we do these things that qualify us to like, get into this kingdom? And I find this really fascinating because it speaks to like, I mean, honestly, like a, a bit of like a lack of awareness on their part, right? And when we talk about a lack of awareness, we often mean it in like a negative sort of derogatory sort of sense. But I don't think any of that is present with those at the right. But rather, it seems to speak of um, like the reality that these good works that they do in their life are just part of their natural way of being. But like this is just the natural way that they inhabit their life, that they go around doing these good works, that good works, doing good works is part of like their muscle memory. And the thing about muscle memory is like your muscles might remember it, but your, your mind doesn't always remember it, right? Uh, I don't know what your bedtime routine is, but mine is before I go upstairs, I click the, the fob on both our cars, make sure it's locked, lock both our doors and set the alarm and then head upstairs. More often than not, I make it two steps, turn around and walk back down to make sure that I did it again, right? <laughs> my muscles remember to do this, but my mind doesn't always remember it. And that seems to be the case here, right? Their muscles remember to do these good works, to care for people along their way, but their mind doesn't always remember it. And so then we get to this uh, dramatic uh, revelation er, uh, of Jesus here where the surprising twist where he says like, well, whatever you did it to the least of these, you did to me. And we can't miss this, right? Like if you spent any amount of time in Christian circles, like you've probably heard this before and it begins to like, fall a little flat. But like this is radical. Like this is revolutionary. Like Jesus, the king of the world, has now like taken place among the least of these. And it turns out that Pax is a really good theologian, right? Like this is exactly what he was getting at. And maybe we would be better if we stopped praying for Jesus to help and instead responded as if it was Jesus himself who was in need of help. Like, this is a paradox that we as followers of Jesus cannot lose sight of. That Jesus is both king of the world, the king who has come and is sitting on his throne of glory, and yet at the same time, for whatever reason, in some way, sets up shop, gets embodied, lives his life in and with and among those who are uh, among the most vulnerable and suffering the most among us. Now, I recognize that, that, that paradoxes are hard to um, like communicate fully in words, and sometimes they're communicated best in images. And so I, I love this uh, icon here by Kelly Lattimore called the, the Homeless Christ. And I've shown this before, but every time I look at it, like it, it does something to me, right? Like it gets this paradox, right? Like the, the, there's this person who is among the most suffering, the most vulnerable among us, somebody that we might pass each and every day as we drive or walk through the streets. And yet it's, it's not just a, a poor homeless person. Like we see the halo representing like the divinity of this person. Like it's Jesus himself, both king of the world and yet embodied among the, those most vulnerable and those suffering the most. We'll come back to this icon uh, in, a, in a minute. But the second round of judgment here. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me and into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord... 
When was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So this is fascinating. The left respond in essentially the same way that those on the right did. Lord, when was it that we saw you and we didn't care, take care of you? And here, their lack of awareness does carry that sort of negative connotation, right? Because this lack of awareness isn't the fact that like, these good works are in, um, um, caught up in muscle memory, but this lack of awareness seems to speak to maybe like a, a sort of self-centeredness, right? A lack of awareness of the needs of the world around them. Perhaps these people are the ones that are walking around with their face in their cell phone, right? And again, we have this sort of surprise revelation, the surprise twist at the end of Jesus saying, whatever you didn't do to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now at the end of this teaching, uh, Jesus summarizes it and says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, if you're like me, when you hear the words eternal punishment contrasted with eternal life, your ears perk up because I don't want eternal punishment, but the eternal life, yeah, that sounds good. So I, I want to pay attention to that, right? So like what, uh, what determines if somebody can inherit eternal life or not? Jesus says it's the righteous. The righteous get to, uh, get to inherit eternal life. And so again, we ask the question, well, what determines like righteousness? Like what determines if somebody is righteous, is a righteous person? Well, the passage makes it pretty clear. Did you pray the sinner's prayer? Did you walk down the Romans road? More importantly, did you walk somebody else down the Romans road? Did you avoid rock and roll music at all costs? And can you affirm these 5, 10, 15, 20 theological statements that our particular denomination at this particular moment in human history deemed to be the inerrant, infallible interpretation of the word of God? No, that's not what Jesus says, right? Like, that's not what determines righteousness. But instead, in this parable, Jesus says that what determines if somebody is righteous or not is if you live a life of justice and mercy. New Testament scholar Anna Case Winters uh, um, notes that like, in the original Greek, the original language of the New Testament, that this word righteous would have carried with it this connotation of somebody who's committed to both justice and mercy. That this is what it means to be a righteous person. In commenting on this uh, passage, she notes that the righteous ones display true piety and that they do these works of mercy unselfconsciously with no consideration for being seen or being rewarded. She goes on and says that to be among the righteous is to live out the love of the neighbor, demonstrating justice through acts of mercy for the most vulnerable. See, we often think of righteousness as like this internal sort of posture. But as it turns out, it's not just an internal posture. It's an internal posture that's meant to lead us into an external sort of posture. Of, uh, of, an int uh, of our inner world being in a proper alignment that leads us into working for our outer world being, coming into proper alignment. So much so that we live out this, uh, the second of the greatest commandments of Jesus to not just love God, but to also love our neighbor as ourself. Um. So uh, we come back then to this uh, icon from Kelly Lattimore here. And here's the tension that I feel with uh, this icon. If it were any of you that were in need, I would help out no problem, right? <laughs> 
Which, by the way, is, is a good impulse, right? Like, I think that that's a, a really good, necessary sort of thing. I think that's something that we as a, a congregation do really, really well. Um, I, I think that's a vital part of discipleship and, like, embodying what it means to be the, the, the kingdom of God and the community of Jesus, yeah? But why is it that I would help you uh, if you were in need uh, pretty quickly? Because I know you, right? Which means that I know your heart. I know your motivation. Uh, I know your story. I know your circumstances. And because I know all of these things, this means that I can trust you with my acts of justice and mercy. (laughs) But if it were anybody else that I didn't know, some random person, somebody from our neighborhood or somebody on the street asking for money, uh, I might be a little bit more skeptical and a little bit more hesitant to help out in some way, right? Why? Because I don't know them, which means I don't know their heart, I don't know their motivation, I don't know their story, I don't know their circumstances. And this means then that I don't know that I can trust them with my acts of justice and mercy, which is its own topic for another day, yeah? But here's the kicker of this passage. Like, it turns out that this isn't just some random person. It turns out I do know this person because this person who's asking for help that needs some sort of care or attention from me isn't just some stranger, some random person on the street, but it's Jesus himself. Like the one that I claim to love more than anything else in life, the one that I claim and call my Lord and Savior, it's not just a random person, it's Jesus. And this passage seems to suggest that like, to attend to the least of these is to attend to Jesus himself. But again, it's not just some random person, but it's our Lord. <laughs> it's Jesus himself. In the opening pages of, of the scriptures, uh, we're told that God created humankind in God's image and then like, entrusts God's creation to us, which means that like, we're given dominion over it, meant to, to rule over it, to care for it, to tend to it as if we were God's very self. And so this certainly means like the creation, the dirt and the soil itself, but I think also the systems and the structures and the ways that we organize our shared life together. And the decisions that we've made um, haven't always done that well. <laughs> and sometimes the decisions and the systems and the structures and the ways that we've organized our shared life have actually like created the scenario for there to be those who are more vulnerable and suffer more among us. And so Jesus seems to care about this so much that like, he steps out of the corporate office and like, goes down to the mail room. <laughs> and how we treat those in the mail room, <laughs> how we treat those who are counted among the least of these, as Jesus refers to them, like this, rather than our theological knowledge or our theological purity, like this is what determines if somebody is or is not righteous. Now, I don't know how... Um, you hear this, I don't know what sort of feelings or emotions come up. Uh, I feel very overwhelmed by this passage every time I interact with it. <laughs> uh, but I don't think that this passage is meant to like, guilt us or shame us in any way. And so, uh, let's, let's sit with this for a second. Perhaps it would be helpful to ask the question of, like, uh, where at in my life am I already doing acts of justice and mercy? Where am I already living out a life of justice and mercy? Where am I already living out like, a righteous life? Um, because as I noted a few weeks ago, there's one thing that I know about everybody here. Y'all a bunch of do-gooders, right? Like I guarantee there are spaces in your life where you're doing this already, where you're living out a righteous life, living out a life of justice and mercy. But I think we sometimes can respond like the first group and be like, huh? When? Where? (laughs) 
So sometimes it's helpful to call it to mind. Um, when I think about my own life, uh, my life is like filled with caring for kids. And like, I think kids are easily like some of the most vulnerable among us, right? Like this is why nonprofits dedicated to kids like succeed well, right? Because everybody wants to help out kids, yeah? And so when I think about my own life, like in that list that Jesus went through, like daily I'm confronted by a child who is hungry. Daily I'm confronted by a child who is thirsty. Uh, daily I'm confronted by a child who's a bit strange at times, yeah? Daily I'm confronted by a child who is inexplicably naked. Go back to the child being strange, right? Um, regularly I'm confronted by a child who's sick, or re- regularly I'm confronted by a child who's like a prisoner of the moment, right? And my job as a parent is to attend to them, to care for them, to, to give them what they need in that moment. Again, kids are like some of the most vulnerable, so maybe it means that to like parent well is like a, a righteous act, like, that is to live a life of justice and mercy. So what's, what are you doing? Like, what's, what, what are you already doing in your life? Maybe you're caring, maybe you are a parent, right? Maybe you're caring for an aging parent, or maybe you're um, caring for your partner, or maybe you're caring, or walking alongside of um, a friend or a family member, a neighbor, coworker, somebody who just needs somebody to walk with them. I think it's important to acknowledge this, because I don't think that this, this passage is meant to guilt us or shame us. Um, so let's give ourselves a little bit of grace there, yeah? However, uh, <laughs> while this passage isn't meant to guilt us or shame us, I do think that this passage is meant to stretch us and challenge us and break us out of um, some potential like habits of self-centeredness and to open our eyes and to become aware of the needs around us. Uh, I grew up in, in pretty charismatic circles, which meant that like we were looking for God in everything and everywhere at all times, um, which was like a, a good sort of impulse, but I think misguided in some ways because it often meant like looking for God's double blessing for me, myself, and I, right? But I wonder if like the impulse is good and maybe like we, we should be looking for God anywhere and everywhere and all places because I think God is anywhere, everywhere, and all places, but especially, especially among those that Jesus calls the least of these. And so what if we stopped seeing these righteous acts, these acts of justice and mercy, as just another burden to add on to our already busy, uh, hectic sort of lives, and instead saw them perhaps for what they are, an opportunity to have an encounter with Jesus himself. To attend to the least of these is to attend to Jesus himself. Um, I'll be the first to admit, like I I certainly don't have this down. I know I talk a big game when it comes to justice, but um, I'll also admit that like there there are intersections in town that I avoid um, because I know that there will be people there asking for money and I don't want the guilt of this passage screaming at me from the front of my mind right Um, but I know that I also feel a certain level of religious angst like wanting to have some sort of encounter with God and I wonder what would happen if I channeled that religious angst towards those that Jesus called the least of these because perhaps God isn't hiding from us but perhaps God is all around us in Jesus, setting up shop, living life in and among and with, embodied in those that Jesus calls the least of these. To attend to Jesus is to attend, or to attend to the least of these is to attend to Jesus himself. So let's be righteous people, friends. Let's live a life committed to justice and mercy. Amen.